Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O.com. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, friends, listen, big news. The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Fuller. Now, Noah and I, we went last year, met quite a few of you, and let me just say, it was amazing. If you were not able to come last year, I recommend making the time to come out this year because not only will you get to hang out with podcasts like ours or you have permission with Dan Koch and the Bible for Normal People, by the way, but you get to listen to and meet some unreal scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ord, Pete Enns, and John Dominic Crossan with more speakers and podcasts to be announced over the next few months. Listen, if you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, I get this question all the time. Who do I listen to? How do I think about these things differently? Beer camp is the place to come. I'm not a big beer drinker, and if you're not, don't let that deter you from coming out because it's not really about the beer. It's about the people and listening not only to some amazing lectures, but getting to hang out with some of these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you'll get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Pre-sale tickets are out now, which means they are the cheapest they're going to get. So pick them up and I'll see you October 19th. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, my beautiful friends. How are you? Good to be back. Welcome to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. Okay, on this episode, I interviewed an evangelical Christian apologist. I interviewed Sean McDowell. Let me just tell you right away, Sean is not affirming. He's a conservative Christian. So if you don't want to hear Sean's perspective, I totally understand. Um, so you, you can go ahead and just go to the next episode on this podcast. But we talked not so much about cultural issues because the conversation didn't get there in time before we had to end. We talked about it briefly, but we talked a lot about just different ways of viewing the faith. And I'll, I'll be honest, Sean said some things that surprised me, like in, in a good way. Sean said some things that I'm like, oh, you know, Sean, if you were teaching me as an adolescent about the resurrection, I'd probably not have a whole faith crisis around it. So that's great. I, I must say, Sean and I probably disagree on a lot. I appreciate Sean's humanization. I appreciate his kindness. I appreciate his willingness to engage. And that's why I invited him on. You Friends, you know, if you listen to the show, we are incredibly wide, right? We've had people like Bart Ehrman on the show. We've had Russell Moore on the show. We've had Angela Parker, Pete Enns, 
um, you know, all of those kinds of people that, 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 that demonstrate a very wide perspective in the Christian tradition. So I brought on Sean to have a good faith dialogue. Um, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation overall. So Sean, thank you so much for coming on. It means the world and hopefully we'll do it again. I certainly had more questions that I couldn't get to for the sake of time. That being, um, the case friends, thank you so much for being here. I, I say it, but I mean it. People listening to this podcast, I, I can't believe it. Thank you for listening. I hope that that these conversations help you in your faith journey. I hope that they help you understand how big and wide and complicated the Christian tradition is. If you want to support the work that we do, you can share the podcast. That's a really easy way. You can give us a rating and a review on iTunes or on YouTube or Spotify. That also helps other people find out about us because that makes the algorithm push our episode to other people. And lastly, Listen, we are a nonprofit organization. Let me just tell you very quickly why we became a nonprofit as opposed to like a Patreon business model. When I started this work, I knew very quickly that for us to do it right, we needed accountability. And I did not feel great charging people who were going through a faith crisis money for extra help. So Patreon was not an option for us. And a, a nonprofit has built in accountability. There's a board of directors that oversee me. I'm not a voting member of the board. I have no say on the board. Um, and also, it lets us solicit donations, which I think gives more community buy-in because now we're able to offer all of our resources for free. That's the best part about this. People donate every month and they help us make this work possible that lets everything be Patreon free. There's no subscription you have to subscribe to. There's no cost to join um, our website to get access to our private Facebook community or our, our Theology 101 Zoom groups or our community map. It's all free because people donate. If you want to help make this work possible, donating would help us so much. It could be even $5 a month. Anything helps. Listen, this podcast reaches a lot of people. There are thousands of you. If we all just chipped, chipped in a little bit, this work would be sustainable long-term. We are trying to plan better content, better ways of doing things. And unfortunately, that takes money to do. It takes money to buy the gear, to do the, the to have the equipment, to make to have the, the subscriptions, to have the overhead, to have an accountant, to, 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 to make sure we're above board with our finances. So if you want to donate, go to the link in our show notes, click on donate. All donations in the U.S., in the U.S. are tax deductible. I can't thank you enough, friends. Your donations hold space for thousands of people trying to navigate a better path forward. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Sean. Talk to y'all later. All right, well... Dr. Sean McDowell, I, I must say, first off, it is truly an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've known about your work for quite a quite a while. I grew up in evangelical spaces. Um, and what the reason why I asked you on the show, and I've asked quite a few different like Christian apologetic uh, apologists who might kind of swim in your circles. Uh, most have said no, but I'm glad you came on because I've always found I've always found your approach very genuine. I, I, I find your overall tone of voice to be very kind and gracious, even to folks that you don't agree with. And frankly, I think we need more of that, uh, no matter where we tend to land and, and our different theological perspectives and, and views on things. So I just want to say thank you for that approach. And it's really great to have you on. So thanks for making time. Well, thanks, Tim. I'm really honored that you would invite me, and I appreciate that. I try to do the things you say fall short a lot, but that's certainly my goal. So uh, let's do it. All right. So I, I'm kind of curious, like your backstory, I don't really know much about it. What what led baby toddler Sean into the world of apologetics, into what you do now? We're really, as far as I'm aware, and tell me if I'm wrong, you are a full-time Christian apologist. You work with all kinds of people. You do things with, with atheists, with progressive Christians, with all kinds of people having these discussions. How did you kind of get from point A to point B? Yeah, obviously, this is a huge story. I had no interest growing up in going into apologetics. I had no goal of becoming a speaker. Uh, mm. And obviously, I don't think anyone can understand my story apart from my father's story, Josh McDowell. I mean, I grew up in the yeah. home of one of the most influential Christians, probably in the 80s and 90s. 
in America, maybe and beyond, who's an apologist? And I just thought, you know, in my mind, my dad is the Michael Jordan in this world. I'm going to do something else. And I thought I was going to do some sports ministry or teach or something like that. And I think some of the factors were my own season of doubt and questioning. This is the mid-90s in college. I remember just searching when we first, pre-Google, we were able to look at kind of websites. (laughs) And the secular web really began taking my dad's book, Evidence It Demands Verdict, chapter by chapter. And there were doctors, lawyers, historians responding to this. And I had never seen that before, Tim. It was, to say the least, really unsettling to me. I'm not sure I would have put it in these words, but I think looking back, if Mm. somebody asked me, why isn't someone a Christian? The level of thoughtfulness probably would have been, well, they just haven't read one of my dad's books. Like, how hard is it? And then all of a sudden I find these really thoughtful people challenging things I thought were obvious. And it just put me into a tailspin. So a lot of it was talking with people like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig and starting to study apologetics myself, ironically, outside of the stuff my dad had written. I just needed somebody else to say it. And I started to realize, okay, this, this makes sense. I actually think this is true. And then I had some speaking opportunities that cropped up. Really, it was my senior year. I took an apologetics class with J.P. Moreland. It was the first time. This is 90, 1998. I was introduced to a philosophical way, like intelligent design, problem of evil, philosophy of mind. And I was just hooked. It was so interesting to me. And so I did the MA Phil graduate uh, theology and philosophy program for three years and really thought I was just going to coach basketball and teach high school Bible for a while. I had no intention of going further. And then I just started getting speaking opportunities. Someone asked me to write a book. I was like, well, okay, like what do I need in a classroom? And so I wrote something that I thought I would use in a classroom. And honestly, it just kind of started growing and people started inviting me back who didn't even know who my dad was. And I was like, okay, maybe maybe I've got a little contribution I can make here. And I also just looked at young people and kind of thought, I've always enjoyed working with students. There is a need for apologetics. They're asking a ton of questions. I didn't see a lot of resources for students and worked into it. And about five years of teaching high school Bible, I kind of realized I can't do this for 40 years. I want to go to <laughs> college and grad school, went yeah. and did a PhD, got hired at Biola. And that's kind of the quick version. So it's a combination of my father's influence is huge, never telling me I should be an apologist. I don't remember that once. He gave me the freedom to discover it, but modeled just a life of impact. I think seeking after truth, uh, just lived a, and still have a great relationship with him. My own questions and then just figuring out what I want to do with my life, it just made sense. Hmm. So at, at this point in your in your work, do you just feel like you just found your life calling? Like, this is just what I was designed to do. I just love doing this work. Honestly, Tim, I do. I, I think if someone came to yeah. me and said they'd give me $5 million to run some <laughs> business, I, I mean, it would be tempting. I'd have to talk with my wife, you know, but inside <laughs> yeah, I'd be right. like... Yeah. This is not what I want to live for. I'm 46. I already see that I'm past the halfway hump probably in my life. I there's there's honestly nothing I would rather do than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. No, I get that. I mean, I listen, we run a very small nonprofit here and I'm the only person on staff so to speak, but I found like I feel like I found my calling and mm-hmm. I very much feel the same way where if someone offered me millions of dollars to run a company that I hated to run. I mean, mm-hmm. on one hand, I guess tempting because of the financial security, but like I would just be miserable doing it. You know? Yeah, so, me too. I, I, yeah, I feel that. So, okay. You know, I, I, I am someone, I'm not sure how much you know about me, but just cliff notes, you know, homeschooled for nine years, grew up in a very John MacArthur type of theological paradigm, mm-hmm. always committed to Jesus, did all of the church stuff you can think of, um, pretty wide regarding my church tradition. I've been part of the AEG, been part of the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, been part of non-denominational. I've helped plant churches. I I have read the books. I used to listen to Ravi Zacharias religiously wow. on his podcast. You know, I would because I, I, I and I and I still am. I should note, but I was committed to Jesus, and I still am very much committed to Jesus. I mean, I would still affirm a physical resurrection. I would affirm the virgin birth, like all the orthodox, you know, tenets of, of classical Christian belief. I'm like, yeah, I'm all about them. Yet I have found myself 
really further than ever um, out of what I call the basement, but you know, just further from the spaces of this evangelical tradition I grew up in, um, I, I really couldn't find overtime as, and I, I want to preface, I am not the academic in this conversation. I don't have a PhD. This is not my specialty. So I fully acknowledge that you know, and you're the one who is more well-studied than I am. But from listening to different folks in the Christian tradition, I just found some of the evangelical positions long-term untenable for me. Mm. And one of them, I think, is biblical inerrancy. Okay, And, and, and the way I was taught about it was, hey, the Bible is God's word. God says it. That settles it. Read this book. It's the blueprint for life. You know, here's the way you interpret it. Here's a systematic theology. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. I said, great. I will not take your word for it. I will read it for myself. And I did. And I was really confused. And I was also grew up Calvinist. So I'm like, okay, so God's predestining people. And then my brother, who's not a Christian, one time he's like, yeah, I guess I'm just not predestined to go to heaven. I guess I'm just, I'm just hell bent. I was like, wow, is that how that works? Like my brother, who's not a Christian, just has no choice in the matter. He's totally depraved and on the way to hell. And that just sent me on a quest to see, well, are there other ways of viewing these things? that maybe aren't through those lenses that are still faithful to the Christian tradition. And I did, I did, but I found my own tradition was like, sorry, dude, you're a heretic now. Like you reject these things and you're just not a Christian. And I think a lot of people in my position struggle with like what people say is a true Christian or not. You know, like, okay, this is a Christian. This is not a Christian from your experience and your vantage point as someone who is an apologist giving a defense of the Christian faith. What do you say are some of the, the key absolutes to being considered an actual Christian speaking for all Christianity of all time? What would those things be from your vantage point? Yeah. So thanks for sharing your story. That's really interesting to hear where you're coming from. I, I would separate like central core ideas, which I think what you're asking from secondary ideas. So yeah. I embrace inerrancy. Now we have to qualify what we mean by that according to genre yeah. and all these issues we're obviously not going to go into, but I believe that. But that is a secondary issue, not a central issue to a saving faith. That's a question of like, do we have the right books? How did Jesus view the scriptures? How should we understand the scriptures? Do they come from God? How did God communicate? Those are all important issues, but they're not central issues to whether somebody is a believer or not. So I think what often happens in certain fundamentalist churches, and it sounds like you've experienced this, is that secondary issues become primary issues that we divide over and call people heretics who differ with us on secondary issues women in church, in ministry, uh, certainly not in church. Everyone agrees women should be in church. Women in roles in ministry, uh, age of the earth, inerrancy, important, but not central. I think central issues are like the identity of Christ. Is Jesus the God man? Did Jesus rise from the grave? Is God triune? Is salvation by faith? These are some of the core doctrines that somebody has to believe to be a Christian. And if they don't, at some point, they're not a believer. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 is clear. And you said at the beginning, you embrace the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I think Paul's really clear. If this didn't happen, our, we are still in our sins and Christianity is false. And we are to be pitied about that. There's writings, of course, in 1 John that talk about if you say, you know, Jesus did not come in the flesh, this is kind of a heretical view. So there's some core essential beliefs, those tied to salvation, character of God, person of Jesus, that are essential to being a Christian. And then the others we can agree to disagree over, and we should obviously do more charitably than we often do on some of the issues you said, like inerrancy. So here's my question to that, right? And this is this is honestly, I would love to hear your answer because I struggle with this. I hear someone say something like that, and I go, okay, that makes sense. But then I think about what what we're claiming is that every person who's a real Christian believed those things. Like, for example, I, I, from my understanding, feel free to correct me. You're more than welcome to. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity, I think we can trace how it developed 
somewhat over time. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like this core. I don't think the earliest church had the same view of the Trinity regarding how we see God, Father, Holy Spirit that we do now. I mean, there are obviously creeds written about this. They debated this and then they settled on, okay, which view is going to make it. So what I'm trying to say is like, if one of the people in, in the Acts church did not have the right Trinitarian view of you know, God, are they somehow like on the way to hell? <laughs> like, that's what I'm trying to figure out yeah. through that evangelical model of the most important thing is, you know, eternal salvation long-term. What are your thoughts on that? So I think there's a difference between what beliefs are essentially true and what mm. individuals have to believe and can't yeah. reject. So there's a difference between somebody being able to say, yeah, let me articulate the Trinity. Well, clearly <laughs> before the time it was formulated, somebody couldn't. But are they going to reject the doctrine of God when it's presented to them? That's a very different thing. So I think there's beliefs that have to be true. Beliefs, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we can reject. If you reject certain beliefs, it's like, okay, is this really an orthodox belief? Mm -hmm. That's the distinction I would make. I mean, the thief on the cross clearly didn't line up. Maybe he didn't understand the virgin birth. Maybe he didn't understand the Trinity. But maybe he understood, okay, I'm a sinner. This is the Messiah salvation is offered to me. I'm crying out to this God for salvation. That kind of minimalist approach, I think clearly even scripture says is sufficient for somebody to be saved. So Mm -hmm. you might say metaphysically, there's certain truths that have to be the case for Christianity to actually be true, but how much we have to understand them and be able to articulate them that's a separate issue, I think, that follows up we could nuance. Yeah, you know, I, I think in my own faith journey, I've just been working through this like reality that the very little I know and who I listen to, like I'm a big fan of the mm-hmm. Bible Project. That's Tim Mackey, John mm-hmm. Collins. You know, you listen to one or two episodes with them and you're like, whoa, this book is not anything like I thought it was supposed to be like, I mean, you, you read, yeah. I mean, you, you, it just, it blows my mind, right? Like one of the, my first episodes with them I ever, I ever listened to was the idea of God or gods in the Bible, like how the Bible talks about God and Elohim and the divine council. And then I'm in Michael Heiser and I'm like, oh my, the, the divine I council, agree. what is going on here? And so I think that I have learned that I inherited a, a tradition from people who meant well. I don't think I had like you know bad people in my life, but they just gave me a very black and white. Here's the in, here's the out. Just stay in, and you're good. And then like you start going beyond that, and you're like, wait a second, my paradigms have to shift based on what you taught me to do, how to approach this. I'm approaching it, and I'm finding very different realities from what you taught me when it comes to how we view the Bible, how we even got the Bible. I didn't realize till like five years ago that we had none of the original manuscripts. I didn't know that, but that does kind of, I mean, it kind of changes the game with, with how we, what we do and how we see the Bible on the like objective level sense. Like I fully admit, and I wouldn't say the Bible is definitely inspired and it's even authoritative in some sense, but how we interpret that, what we do with it. I mean, get in line. There's a long list of people who disagree on this stuff. What are your thoughts on some of that regarding like that paradigm shift? That's still very Christian, but not so much like this absolutism of what we definitely can and can't know objectively speaking. So I I suspect, I could be wrong, that some of our evangelical experience growing up is a little bit different. I had, I mean, honestly, not that I agree with my dad on every issue and have some issues with the larger evangelical tradition I was raised in. There was a pretty good balance of grace and truth, love and truth for me. Let's die on the right issues. And so when I come across something like Heiser, and I read his stuff and I've interviewed him, super interesting, stretched my categories. And I think, I'm not sure I'm persuaded by this. I don't know that he fully persuaded me, but he gave me a lot of pause. And I thought, wow, he's really trying to interpret this according to the scriptures in its context, comes up with this idea of henotheism, that there's still one ultimate authoritative God, but there's these other gods. I look at that and I think that, that... for lack of a better term, that's not threatening to orthodoxy, I don't think, in the big picture of things. It just frames a little bit differently and not as airtight as certain circles, I think, in evangelicalism have said, we understand passages in the Old Testament. So I read that, I'm like, that's pretty interesting. That's fascinating. 
uh, if I'm persuaded, I don't think it means somebody's outside of orthodoxy wherever we land those. And so I enjoyed reading this stuff. So I think, I don't even know if this is answering your your question exactly what you're getting at, but yeah, pushback. I don't feel like I'm answering what you're getting no, at. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I guess what I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm not always the best person to articulate these very complicated things is, okay, let me ask you a question to make sure I'm understanding you correctly first before I assume. You know, would you say that like we can we can objectively prove certain realities about the Christian tradition, like, for example, the physical resurrection. Like that's an objective truth that physically definitely happened in history, objectively speaking. No, I don't think we can definitively prove it because I would not use the term proof. I would say the resurrection, we have good reason to believe that it's true. I think we have knowledge about that. But I wouldn't use the term prove and proof and absolute when talking about something 2,000 years ago in history. That's not how history operates. Now, I know right now someone's going to cut that clip and do a whole thing. and go. I know how social media works. <laughs> so I might have just set myself up for uh, some criticism on this one. But the whole point is I don't look at these things as proof, absolute certainty. I look at the resurrection and say, okay, do we have good reason to believe that it's true? Is this the best explanation of the facts? And as we lay out our case historically, I really think it is. But this idea of prove and certainty and proof, I think sometimes in evangelical circles, we set that up. So somebody goes, well, I have little doubts. I have little questions. That means I reject the entire thing. That's a terrible way of framing issues like this because I'm a natural doubter. I'm a natural skeptic. And so yeah. I think we can know things with confidence without absolutely certainly proving them uh, for a lot of different reasons. Man, I mean, if I had a hat, I'd take it off and tip it towards you. I, I, I Yes. Mm. I mean, I appreciate the honesty on that question. And it, it wasn't a setup question. I'm, I asked that because... I'm thinking of like, um, and I'm not saying that this person ever said that, but you have books by like Lee Strobel, for example, right? You know, The Case for Christ, et cetera. And there seems to be this air that I was was breathing in, even beyond my own John MacArthur days of like, well, if, if, if we can't prove the resurrection, our faith therefore isn't true because we can't absolutely prove it. Therefore, we have nothing. And so this got me to a place where I was like, well, hmm. if I have, if, if I admit to myself that it is kind of crazy to think that 2000 years ago, a human being who was also fully God raised was raised from the dead and was walking around bodily in like bodily form and then ascended to heaven somewhere. And it's, if, I, if I admit that maybe that is a little crazy, even though it's still, I think is, is true in the sense of like, it's beautiful and valid. Um, I, is my faith real or not? Mm. And I think for a lot of my life, I had this idea of like, if I'm not using the scientific method on my faith and it, and, and, and it's not proven that way, Whatever I have can't be real. But I think over time, especially after listening to some friends of mine who are more Eastern Orthodox, who are much more like mystery driven, you know, I've, I've learned to make space for like, you know, yeah, I, I can't objectively prove that the resurrection happened. I still would affirm that it did. I trust that it did. But, you know, there's some mystery here. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Does that make sense? It totally does. I, I resist the word prove and prove and absolute. And I actually push back on the evangelical community regularly for speaking in that language. And I think it invites a lot of people to deconstruct and deconvert their faith because they feel like if I don't have certainty, therefore I don't have faith. I mean, think about what we call doubting right. Thomas. He's not a right. doubter. What is a doubter? A doubter is someone who goes, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm wavering. Thomas is like, I will not believe unless you give me proof. He's not a doubter. And that gives the message to people that if you have questions and you're not sure, you basically reject the faith, which is completely unhelpful. Now, honestly, a lot of the apologists I know and I work with nuance things in the way that I am here, are very careful. Like Gary Habermas who has studied the resurrection and is working on a four tome, I think 5,000 word volume on the resurrection. He studied it his entire life. 
will not use like pro- words like proof, will not talk about certainty. And he's also written books on how we emotionally deal with doubt. So there are some really thoughtful, balanced apologists out there. Now, the one qualification I would say is there's a difference between proving the resurrection and the resurrection being true or false. So Mm. all branches of Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, have to agree if Jesus has not risen, Christianity is false. But where our confidence comes from, that Jesus has risen. That's where we can differ over this. And I actually believe, I think if somebody gets into the scriptures, understands who Jesus is, I think the Holy Spirit can speak directly to somebody and give them a confidence that this is true in a, in a mysterious fashion. But we can also have confidence by looking at the evidence and the way Lee Strobel and others do that goes, wow, there's really good reasons to believe that this happened. Hmm. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to interview um, John Dominic Crossan uh, a few weeks ago. Wow. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you know who he is. And he was he was super charitable. Something he told me that just always stuck with me, even beyond the conversation with the resurrection, was that metaphor creates reality. I was like, wow, that just always hmm. stuck with me. You know, this idea of like we use metaphors all the time, and those metaphors create realities in our world consistently, and that even helped me. Um, not so much like, I mean, I'm kind of in my own journey. I'm not so much asking these questions so much anymore of like, you know, did or did it not happen? I'm, I've learned just to, hey, I affirm it. Yeah. I embrace it. I can't explain it. I'm okay with that. Um, but this idea that like, you know, um, how we think about these things, the shape, how we view the world and how we live out the world around us. And I think what keeps me grounded in the resurrection is the idea that honestly, death doesn't have the final say. It's just a beautiful Amen. way of viewing a hope, whether I can objectively prove it or not, isn't even the point. It's a hope that keeps me grounded in this idea that God wants to partner with humanity to bring glimpses of heaven on earth until, of course, heaven in the new earth is, is you know, restored, which again, is these are very metaphysical ideas and very, like, how does that work? And, you know, how, how does a resurrection of all things happen when you're cremated? I don't know. But these ideas help keep me grounded that there is beauty in life to find and kind of keeps me in this mentality of advocating for our neighbors based on what Jesus taught us to do, you know, love God and love neighbor. So I always found that very helpful in my own personal life, frankly. (laughs) Hey, look, I I love that, that that works for you. That gives you hope. Obviously, as an apologist and the way that I'm wired, I'm going to say, okay, yeah, this gives me hope. It's beautiful, but I don't want to believe a false hope. I only want to ground my life in something if I have good reason to believe that it's true. That's Mm -hmm. the apologist in me that has to ask that question And there's a whole lot of people asking that question as well. That's where I try to keep those two in balance. It's beautiful. You see this idea of dying as an act of love in the Avengers, you know, for crying out loud. That's this hero after 10 years. I mean, laying down his life willingly to save half the universe. Like I see the gospel in that. I'm like, it's beautiful. And when I watch that, that kind of tells me, you know what? In our hearts, we know that's what a hero is. We know that's what love is. We yearn for that. That gives me confidence that it's true. So there is yeah. the beauty and the goodness of the story. But I've also got to ask the question, is it true? Where does the evidence point? That's just how I see the world. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. How do you deal with other religions? I mean, mm. I, I'll be honest, and maybe we have uh, some disagreement here. I, I, I'm not, I, I think as far as my, my, my like, um, 
my afterlife perspective. I'm definitely in between annihilationism or maybe universal reconciliation. I wouldn't really hold mm. to ECT anymore personally. Um, and I'm just realizing like the more I meet people and study and just listen, the world is really big and there are millions, billions of people uh, who are who are doing very loving, self-sacrificial things in the name of whatever religion that they're currently a part of. You know, I understand that, well, I'm assuming you're, you know, you would hold to the, uh, the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. I understand that. But what are your thoughts? Like, does that mean that like everyone who's not in Christ in the evangelical Christian sense is just on the way to hell, despite however they live their life or however they, they love their neighbor? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right that there's people who do good and loving things throughout the rest of the world, and sometimes Christians who don't. The one thing I've been studying and thinking about a lot is I am totally convinced of the depravity of mankind. Mm -hmm. I really am. And I realize this is a conversation that could take us afar, but I think that is one of the most empirically observable true things that Jesus got it right about the human heart. I'm not even talking about being a Calvinist. This is something I think across the (laughs) theological spectrum. Like I am very aware of my own sinfulness needing for God. I think scripture diagnosed the problem in the world right. Now that doesn't answer your question, but that's the lens through which I look at this. I I don't like the idea of hell. It bothers me. Uh, I have loved ones who I deeply care about. And the idea that they could be separated from God and go to hell, man, I get goosebumps in that, especially because the times I'm suffering, it's the idea that this is going to end at some point (laughs) that gets me out of it, however long that may be. Hell just sounds horrific in that sense. Mm. What brings you back to it is I do think that Jesus talked about hell. And I know there's debate, annihilation is like, that's a whole nother huge debate. I get that. But I think Jesus taught about it. And I think he sees with a certain level of clarity. I know he sees with level of clarity. We don't. Like it says, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. So the example I give is if I told you to him, I said, hey, come over this afternoon. I'm giving a, you know, a NFL quarterback clinic. Don't bother to come over. I got nothing. I have no authority to speak on that uh, for a lot of reasons. But if Tom Brady shows up, you better come over. He's going to tell us how to do it. (laughs) Well, who has the authority to speak about this? The sinless, virgin-born, miracle-working, resurrected Christ. So a lot of issues that bother me emotionally, I go back and I say, what did Jesus teach? Did I get it right? Does he see something that I don't? And I would, I would that like genocide with the Old Testament. I mean, these are real tough, difficult questions. And so I'm convinced by that view of hell, whether I like it or not. I think Jesus taught it. I think scripture teaches it. Annihilationism, there's sometimes where I think, you know what? Maybe I kind of hope that that's actually true, but I'm just not convinced that that's the best explanation for reality. So the last thing I would say is, you know, some, sometimes I come back, I say, when it's all said and done, I do believe that God is just. I do believe that God is good. And I think when we look back on this, we're be, we will be able to understand how it played itself out, that God has, in fact, done the right thing. And that gives me confidence as I think about it. Obviously, a ton more could be said, but it's my sure, sure, that's fair. Uh, is ECT for you a primary or a secondary issue? secondary issue okay fair yeah i'm thinking about you know even preston sprinkle i've had him on the podcast he pretty much changed his view from a racing hell he told me when he wrote it with yeah. francis chance and now you know he thinks that it's maybe the least likely at least in the, in the biblical sense anyway reality but and by uh, the way okay, before, we have before, yeah by yeah. the way before you go any further in lee strobel's more recent book he interviews paul copan on hell and there's two chapters if mm. i'm not mistaken even paul says he adopts ECT and pushes back on annihilationism, but it's not a central doctrine because even people like John Stott have believed in this. So I, I'm pretty sure Lee Strobel and some other apologists, since you mentioned earlier, would probably agree yeah. with that too. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I, again, I think about my lived experience as an evangelical, and I remember vividly when Rob Bell wrote Love, uh, wrote Love Wins. You know, John Piper tweets farewell, Rob. I read the book. I was still in my Paul Washer phase. I read the book and I'm like, oh, 
this is like a, a question to ask. Does God get what God wants? That's a fair question. And I remember going to like small churches in my area. I live in New Jersey, not exactly a conservative state, and getting pamphlets like stay away from this book. It's heretical. And I, I think that was one of those moments where, again, I, I think I look back on that and think, wow, like hell is actually quite widely discussed. You have David Bentley Hart, who's an Eastern Orthodox Universalist, uh, who who makes a compelling case, but then you have folks who, who would hold to ECT. But my tradition taught me, if you don't have this view of hell, you're just on the way to hell, essentially. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're going to end up there. So I yeah. think that's why a lot of us like struggle with, with like our own tradition of, of it was so, it was taught as absolute, but it turns out in the Christian tradition, there are like three major ways of viewing this and different church fathers and historians have some different conclusions. Well, I, I resonate with that struggle. You and I might land differently on some of these issues. But I yeah. resonate with that. In part, I'm look, I'm a professor. I'm not threatened by ideas and people who see the world differently. I actually enjoy unpacking it and saying why and what do you think. But sometimes in evangelical circles, we are very fear-based. We just are. Yeah. We're afraid of this community. Yeah. We're afraid of this religion. We're afraid of that doctrine. And there should be a protective element. I don't want to get away from that. But we lead with a lot of fear and reaction. And frankly, as I look back at my ministry, there's a lot of times I've done that. And I realize, oh my goodness, this is my roots speaking through me. I'm not sure that's the best response that I should have. So I guess if hell is real and Jesus taught it, what are we afraid of to have this conversation? That's how I look at it as as a professor. So I think you and I recognize a similar poor response we often have within the evangelical circle even if we maybe land differently on where those the doctrines actually lie. Totally. And to be clear, like I tell people this often, you know, my personal issue with my faith tradition wasn't that it gave me their opinion and thoughts on like how to view some of these issues. It was that they presented them as the only objectively true way of viewing them or else you're a heretic. That was, that's my concern. You know, I have, I have good friends of mine who are still Calvinists. If their view was, Hey Tim, I get it, man. Like the Christian tradition's big, Arminian Calvinism, you know, then you, then you have Leighton flowers and his, uh, whatever he calls it, you know, Providence or something like that. I get it, man. We can see this stuff differently, but instead the take is, you don't believe the gospel because you reject penal substitutionary atonement and cal and, and, and predestination and God's sovereignty. Therefore, we can't have this conversation. And I'm like, dude, like if you read one freshman level, you know, textbook on religious studies, you will have that paradigm blown out of the water immediately. That like it's just it's bigger than what you're presenting is the only way to be Christian. I think that's my my personal maybe out of all the issues, my biggest like gripe with my own tradition that birthed me is that they seem to be so inflexible on things that again have been widely debated and discussed i'm not talking about the resurrection or you know or the virgin birth whatever i'm talking about like hell or inerrancy or you know that kind of stuff does that make sense i think so so you don't you don't have a problem calling somebody a heretic maybe you wouldn't say to their face who says jesus didn't bodily resurrect so there is heresy in your worldview and understanding. We just draw those lines too narrow and don't recognize the broader historical Christian tradition on secondary issues. Is that fair? Can I be honest about that? I when I I have a few people who would say that I mean John Dominic is one of them. He was emphatic. He's a Christian. He's a Catholic Christian. I said, "Okay, but you don't affirm a physical resurrection." Like I I don't understand that, okay? I think I am personally very hesitant to start using the H word. I think I've seen it misused so much. And I think ultimately it's not my call at the end of the world, how things play out with our death. But is, is someone like John loving their, or Dom loving their neighbor and, and committed to like the way of Jesus? despite this belief difference that we have? Yes. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not saying, Mm. oh, no problem. I'm just saying, I don't think it's my call to make that decision of, sorry, sorry, Dom, when you die, God's going to say, Dom, you were so close. Wrong belief about the resurrection though. So he pulls the lever and down to hell, Dom goes. I just don't know if that's how it works. So I'm always hesitant. I I don't call Christian nationalists heretics. I, I really stay away from that language as much as possible because I think that puts me in a position of knowing something that I just, I don't know how it works. I'm okay admitting that. That's, that's really interesting. I appreciate that honesty. I, I would say 
you're right. There should be a hesitancy to call somebody a heretic when we don't know somebody's heart and God is ultimately the judge. I think yeah. maybe a difference how you and I would nuance this. As you said, if somebody is still loving God, that's shifting to behavior, right? Somebody's still acting in a way that loves God. I'm going to say there is a core theological belief at the heart of the faith, and the resurrection is one of those. And that is as clear, I would argue, historically and scripturally. So I'm not going to say to somebody's face, you're a heretic, but that seems to me about as black as white as an issue. You reject the resurrection. I'm not sure in what sense anyone who does that is still a Christian. I mean, I did my dissertation on the death of the apostles. So I studied the earliest creeds and the earliest faith from the teaching in Acts to the first Corinthians 15 creed to the gospels was always tied to the resurrection. And yeah. so I don't have a problem on that issue calling somebody a heretic. <laughs> uh, and again, I'm not going to say it to their face. I'm not the heretic police, but there is a sense, you know, scripturally, it yeah. talks a lot about protecting doctrine and false ideas creeping in. We need to maintain that protectiveness without being overly protective, overly legalistic, and shutting down some of the conversation that concerns you. Well, I think the good news is that, I mean, it's like, what, 99% of all Christians probably affirm a bodily resurrection, you know? So, like, the 1% that's like, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm like, okay, like, whatever. I still think that, like, the, the that doctrine is being protected. I think I, I think I struggle a lot, Sean, like, to be honest with you, over this, like, works grace dynamic that I've always had a hard time fully grasping. Because, again, you know, I think about, like, Matthew 7. You know, like there's not a lot of, uh, it's not a lot about, you know, free gift of salvation. It's more about many of you will say you did these things, but only those who do the will of the father will enter the kingdom. Okay. That's pretty action-based Matthew 25. Jesus pretty much threatens hell. If you don't take care of the poor and clothe the naked, we see a lot of action. I mean, James five is a warning to um, oppressive business owners who essentially exploit uh, their workers, you know? And so I, and also, I think in my lived experience, I've met so many Christians who would affirm the right beliefs while just being some of the cruelest people, mm. um, you know, I, I, I've met. I mean, I, I have to be, I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest about that. You know, even in our mm. society, I look at, at, at how some of these Christian nationalists and what they say, I'm just like, man, you know, okay, I'm glad we share the same theological belief, but I guess our orthopraxy is wildly different. And then I have friends who would maybe not have those beliefs who are actually living out the teachings of Jesus more genuinely than those people. And I'm like, again, assuming God is just, now I'm I'm not God. I don't think like God. I, I fully admit that. But if, if we are made in the Imago Dei and we have sent, we, we have some sense of like right or moral or, or justice, I just have a hard time with this idea that like God is sorting people out by who had the right beliefs over like the right action of love of neighbor. I struggle with that, frankly. Well, I, I hear you. That I, I think there is a tension. You read James and then you read Paul. You read Jesus and then you read Paul. <laughs> it's a sense of like right action is required of Christians and right belief. In a sense, yeah. it's both. I'm going to point towards, as I understand this, a couple things. Number one, I think Paul talks about it's by grace through faith that we are saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works so no one can boast. We're saved by grace through faith. And the next verse is like, and we live out that faith. We are created for good works. So yeah. somebody doesn't have good works. They might really not be a new creation and have saving faith. I think those works, in a sense, reveal, but it's the faith itself by which we are saved. And even when you said, you know, do the will of the Father. Well, Jesus says the will of the Father is that we believe, right? In John 6, his will for us, his desire is that we believe. And then by believing, we live it out. So I can't judge somebody's heart. I can look at the actions that people do, but I don't know why people do those actions. Even living out the actions of Jesus could be for a range of different reasons. That's where God is judging the heart. So I, I, I guess I would just say I recognize that tension, but I get yeah. really nervous when it starts moving towards that works-based, well, they're loving Jesus, they're doing right things, let's judge them on that. I'm like, boy, time out. I think Paul and Jesus are very clear that we cannot separate that from right beliefs about the character of God 
and genuine saving faith. I think we err on both sides when somebody just says, well, I have saving faith and can be a jerk and not live Christianly. But then someone can say, well, now we're going to judge somebody based on their actions apart from that genuine belief. I think we have to keep that tension in the middle and we err when we go to one side or the other. That's how I see it. Matthew, Matthew Bates, you know who he is by any chance? Matthew Bates? I do not. He wrote a book um, called Gospel Allegiance, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ. And one of his big points in the book is that his his view is that faith is better translated allegiance, like an allegiance to Jesus, and that mm. requires action automatically. I think it's a very compelling book. I think it's a compelling case. Mm. Uh, it, it shifted um, you know, how I read even that word faith, because I think my context taught me that faith is is mainly about a belief about trust, mm. you know, in like in like the metaphysical. Physical. Uh, but when I think about, and also I'm, I'm drawing on here, um, Randy Richards, Misreading the Scriptures Through Western Eyes, another really great book. Mm. Uh, he's out of Palm Beach uh, University. And he brings up the point too that, you know, Paul is drawing on this like patron uh, relationship of just like you would, as, as a business owner in theory, you would need someone to kind of uh, sponsor you to have what you needed. And so you couldn't earn the favor of that person. But once that person gave you that favor or grace, you owed your allegiance to them. You were exclusive to them. And that has helped me a lot kind of think about, you know, this way of viewing Jesus that isn't just so much belief-based, but it actually is an allegiance to the way of Jesus over the way of empire, the way of Caesar, etc. And that's been so far the best way I've been able to kind of reconcile this both and of like, yeah, I can't earn the love of God in my life, um, but um, me giving my allegiance to Jesus is, there's expectations from that relationship. So that's mm. been just something I've been thinking about for the past like few years that I just wanted to drop in this conversation while mm. we're kind of on the topic, you know? <laughs> um, great. Okay. We only got a few minutes left, man. I, there are so many things I wanted to hit that we just didn't have time for. I would love to have you back on again for a part two. I wanted to talk about deconstruction for a few minutes, wanted to mm. hit some other things, but I know we both have appointments uh, uh, after this and I want to respect both of our time. Um, so, Let's see. I guess one of my last questions, we got about five minutes. I don't want to open up a can of worms here, but I, I'll <laughs> tell you my beef with the apologist industry as I see it. All right. Because I feel like all we're right. on good terms in this conversation. <laughs> I I feel like there are a lot of folks who are like yourself, very committed to protecting the integrity of the gospel and the faith. I get that. I see a lot of them covering progressive Christianity. Is progressive Christianity a false gospel? Is it is it real Christianity? The dangers of progressive Christianity, yada, yada, yada. I see, and I mean this, I see almost none of them talking about Christian nationalism. That concerns me because I feel like if people took a serious look at Christian nationalism, both through the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, and through the more re reformed uh, R.J. Rush Dooney types who are out there, uh, you would find some major heretical issues happening currently in this movement that is hell-bent on taking over the country and ruling it um, as a Christian nation via their view of, of, of evangelical fundamentalism. So I guess my thoughts, my question to you is like, are you aware of Christian nationalism? Do you have any concerns about it? Do you, do you plan on uncovering it? What are your thoughts on that? So I guess I'd say a couple things, and that's totally fair. I think sometimes I even think about myself. Do I cover some issues more than other issues? Is it balanced? And frankly, sure. sometimes I feel called to certain issues. I'm equipped on certain issues. I have experience with certain issues. And that's just going to shape the issues that I cover. And that's probably true for other apologists. Uh, did a really interesting show on Christian nationalism, had Paul Miller on, who I think has written a, oh, an excellent mm. book on this, and R.R. Reno from First Things. We had about a 90-minute conversation. What do we mean by Christian nationalism? Is it a threat? Is it not a threat? Super mm. interesting. We've talked about it on our podcast. Uh, it's probably been a couple years. So I've discussed it some. In the world in which I live and the research that I do, I don't think it's as much as a threat of some of the other issues that I discuss. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, Tim, and maybe I need to recalibrate. It's not for fear of talking about this. I don't see it as significant within the churches I speak to, the people I address, the world in which I live. And so I've spent some time on it, but not as much as certain other topics. And maybe that's out of balance. I, I don't know. I thought actually was thinking about having a show recently on that and just didn't. So 
that's kind of how I think about it. Covered it some, maybe need to do it more, but I don't know that I see it as considerable as an issue for the church as a whole. I think more of the issue with Christian nationalism is less these figures who are trying to take over the country as what I address a lot in Q&A and on a different platform is just kind of this blending of the flag and the church in a way where our allegiance is not first to the gospel, but it's kind of the flag. And those kind of unhealthy balance gets out of tension. And so in a sense, Christian nationalism is really just believing that, I think this is how Paul uh, defined it when I interviewed him. He says, it's basically believing that America is a Christian nation and should stay that way. Of course, you got to unpack, what does it mean that it's a Christian nation? And there's Mm -hmm. differences over that. I think there's a lot more conservative evangelicals who haven't really thought this through and their allegiance. That concerns me more, and I'll address that more, than these top-down figures you mentioned trying to take over the country for Christian nationalism. I think it's on that lower level that I see it more. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you? What are some of the other issues that that you think are more important to address right now that are more detrimental to the church than Christian nationalism? Like, what what are some of them for you? Uh, I so I what I do is I'll talk about timeless issues on my channel, and mm-hmm. then I'll talk about timely issues on my channel. Mm-hmm. So timeless issues. I actually did a show maybe two or three, maybe two or three months ago on the biggest issue facing the church. I really think a lot of these issues boil down to biblical authority. <laughs> do we really think the Bible is authoritative or do we look to culture or our feelings or some other narrative? I think that's really at the heart of this. So I'll talk about the resurrection. I'll talk about the scriptures. Uh, maybe because of issues my father talked about growing up, I will deal with issues of sexuality a good amount. And I just saw a study yesterday of kids leaving the faith. One of the biggest things that they cite is just confusion over issues of sexuality and gender. That's an issue that I've weighed into somewhat reluctantly, but now speak into that quite a bit. So I think that's a that's an issue that needs to be addressed. I think science and faith are big issues. When you look at Gen Z, huge amount will still see science as being authoritative and feel like if I have to be I'm a Christian, do I have to give up modern science to do so? So issues of sexuality, science and faith are huge that I weigh into. Um, yeah, those are two that come to mind. Great. Last question on that, then I'll let you go. Do you see uh, human sexuality as a primary or secondary issue to being Christian? I don't know that it's that black and white. And let me frame okay. it this way. I think I think the Bible is very clear about what marriage is. Not that all mm. the people in the scripture followed it, but very clear mm. it's meant to be one man, one woman who become one flesh for one lifetime. And consistently, behavior, sexual behavior outside of that is condemned. Almost every vice list in Paul and Peter and in Jesus, sexual immorality is taken very, very seriously. I think Paul places in 1 Corinthians 6, those who practice same-sex sexual behavior in the category of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he places a lot of other categories there too. So I'm not just cherry picking, but this was the heart of the question. And I think marriage is the primary metaphor or vehicle that God uses to teach and show about his love for the church. So Mm -hmm. that's Paul in Ephesians 5, whether that's the unfaithfulness of Israel being compared to adultery in the time of the prophets. So marriage is a very important, vital issue. I think some of the early church didn't address or talk about it because it wasn't as relevant of an issue as it is today. So I think the church has to get it right. Now, is somebody who believes differently than I do about marriage saved or not saved? Only God can answer that. I'm not going to weigh into that. I just think the scriptures are very clear and the scriptures are dividing over this and it's an important one we need to get right for a host of other reasons. Fair. Sean, I really can't thank you enough for coming on. I really would love to do a part two on this. and I might email you because I just have, I man, there are so many topics I wanted to go deeper in on, especially that last one, but we'll have to leave it there. Leave a little cliffhanger for the audience. Um, Again, thank you for your time. Thank you for being so cordial. Where can folks find you if they want to follow more um, of, of your work? 
Uh, first off, thanks for having me on. Thanks for thoughtful, sincere questions. Enjoy the conversation and the pushback and the clarity. Uh, I would say, I mean, the hub for everything is just seanmcdowell.org. That's my website, but I'm on YouTube, uh, Twitter, Instagram, have a blog, uh, use a lot of different social media platforms to try to communicate as well. Fair. All right, Sean, thanks for doing this conversation. We'll talk again. Thanks, Tim. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com.